Episode 8, EB5 superhero Rupi Chima, CEO and founder of EB5 Diligence. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming Rupi Chima, CEO and founder of EB-5 Diligence. Rupi Chima, welcome to the show. Thank you. EB-5 superheroes are industry leaders like you who are protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Rupi, let me brag about you a bit. Respected by top immigration lawyers and regional centers, Rupi Chima heads the EB-5 diligence team, the leading due diligence team in the EB-5 industry. She and her firm have reviewed over 150 EB-5 offerings. EB-5 diligence is committed to providing independent third-party analysis of EB-5 projects to verify the claims made in the offering, conducting analysis of the strengths and weaknesses, and provide full transparency to interested parties. Ruby has a degree in accounting and finance, speaks fluent English, Hindi, and Punjabi, and is an all-around amazing EB-5 superhero. So, Ruby, love to hear more about your story, the backstory, like you to take us back to get a deeper understanding about why you started EB-5 Diligence, and why you think that what you're doing is protecting the good guys and and the path to the American dream. Sure, thank you. That's a very kind introduction. (laughs) So, I've been in, in the industry since about 2012, and we've been doing due diligence on EB-5 projects. And I'm I'm a former auditor for the actually the Canadian um, tax agency, the Canadian IRS, you could say. Wow. So, you know, I find uh, looking at businesses and vetting deals, I I find it very interesting. And I'm also a CPA. So, you know, when I got into the industry, I thought it was an interesting industry simply because I'm from India. And I know that the desire for Indians to move to the US. So I thought it would be a very good program for Indians. But then my choices were really... I could 
could go work with the regional center. And, you know, I didn't like the idea of aligning myself with one project. And I realized that people, there wasn't a lot of due diligence being done on these projects. So that's how EB-5 diligence came about. So we've been providing due diligence to investors, immigration attorneys, broker dealers. I've done some work for even some migration agents and issuers have also retained us. Many years ago, issuers would retain us and distribute our due diligence report to their clients, but only if they liked it, obviously. Like you bring up a lot of interesting, interesting points. First of all, it sounds like, you know, knowing you and what you're doing with EB-5 diligence, you really like to have this third party approach, this objective approach to looking at the projects at the industry. And so tell me about that. There are so many actors and pieces to this EB-5 puzzle, right? There's the regional center, there's the project, there's the investors, there's USCIS. So why do you feel that as EB-5 diligence, you're really adding the greatest value to the whole process? Sure. So that's that's a great question. Sure. There's a lot of, I guess you could say, fiduciaries on the deal already, right? There's the securities attorney, there's immigration attorneys and everyone who's putting the deal together. No one is representing the investor. You know, out of all those fiduciaries, everyone's either representing the issuer. So we bring the investor's perspective on it. My job is to provide transparency. I think the investor should understand what they're buying into. They should understand their rights and remedies and they just should, should know all the strengths and risks of the deal. So that's what we bring to the table. We're bringing the investor's perspective and what an investor should know before making that decision. So you've probably seen the evolution of EB-5 from, I guess, 2012, when you got into the industry till till now. There have definitely been times when investors have jumped into deals without having proper diligence, and that's had certain consequences. And Mm -hmm. now really things hopefully are evolving towards uh, more integrity measures, greater diligence, et cetera. How can you sort of take us back and tell us how that process has gone and why there is such a great need now for EB-5 diligence? Well, I would say when we got into the industry, the industry was very, very China-centric. And the investments were mainly sold through migration agents. And I didn't see a lot of demand for due diligence at the time, you know, from that market. And now the, the industry has shifted, I would say, more to India. And independent due diligence is really high in, in high demand. The investors are looking for independent uh, review of, of the project. And they tend to go online and do a lot of their own research. So I'm amazed at how, you know, when we talk to a client, how much they already know. I I've, I talk to investors and they'll be, oh, this company was just created last year. And because I looked up online on the Secretary of State's website. Or, so the, the investors are, I feel, are a lot more informed and they do a lot of their own research. You've distinguished a very important point. China was centered on these migration agents. They were trusted to do the diligence to sign up these investors. Once India came into the EB-5 scene, there isn't as much reliance on these migration agents. A lot of these investors are doing much more of their own diligence. So they found that there's sort of a void there and they have real questions and want real answers. Right. And India, Indian clients necessarily don't trust immigration agents in India because there has been a lot of fraud from immigration agents in India. So people necessarily, you know, people, especially high net worth people are not necessarily going to trust an immigration agent with with betting on investment. Were you first approached when you're creating EB-5 diligence, were you first approached by the investors who asked you to do a third party analysis of the project, etc.? Or was it really driven by the projects and the and the issuers who are asking for to provide some type of third party guidance for these investors who were asking for it? I would say very early on, it was more driven by the issuers. There was a couple of migration agents who, who wanted the service, but it was 
mainly driven by the issuers. And, and actually, we have in the past few years, we've actually stopped offering that service. Because what I found in my experience was that the issuers felt that if they were paying for it, that they had some sort of editorial control. So I, you know, we would run into situations where they wanted, you know, they wanted us to write something differently in the strengths and risks, and we refused to do that. So we really stepped away from that. It's it's not a model I like, and it's not a situation I like being in. So we we are not giving reports to issuers um, anymore. It's, it's, it's a question which came up in my mind, you know, the, since you really are vetting the deal, you're vet, vetting the actors. Have you ever come across a situation where you were asked to review a project and you said, listen, I just can't do this. <laughs> this is not the right client for AB5 Diligence. Yes, because I don't want someone to make a payment and then, you know, be disappointed later because I know where it's going to go. There are times when someone has basically gone through the whole process and they felt like, well, I'm not going to use this report. What I'm very impressed by is that EB5 Diligence is promising a thorough and independent due diligence review and that aims to determine the likelihood of the 526 approval, the 829 approval, and the full return of capital. Those are huge value adds to an investor who's reviewing this. If they can have a feeling and a sense, where does this project rate in terms of my ability to get that 526 approved, the 829 approved, and then get a full return of capital. Those are, I guess, key issues. And, and the way that you do it is you have these 10 quantitative goals that you're reviewing. These 10 key elements that really proprietary, does the project accord with the EB-5 program requirements? Second, what is the likelihood of job creation and project completion? Investor fund protections, corporate governance, security interests, default conditions, project feasibility, regional center review, evaluation of the issuer and project management, a site visit, and continual updates of the due diligence is, is sort of this moving target, right? So these seem to be 10 best practices of quantitative things that you can look at, right? Well, first of all, you know, that list now is a bit outdated simply because we're not dealing with regional center projects right now. And the industry has shifted away from being mainly a real estate financing vehicle to now we are seeing a variety of offerings. You know, you're talking about a manufacturing, telehealth, call centers. I'm seeing all sorts of businesses and businesses with a history, whereas, you know, typically a construction project didn't really have much history. That checklist is definitely changed a lot in the last couple of months. And your other question was, if we look at any qualitative factors, I mean, it's a very holistic approach, I would say. I find that whenever we did a site visit, that was so informative to me, just going out and meeting someone's staff and the type of shop they run, I would get a sense of, well, boy, this issuer should get fund administration because they definitely don't have the people in place to do the investor intake properly and take care of funds properly and keeping up with all the immigration programs, compliance requirements and other requirements by investors. So it's, it's a very holistic approach looking at the management and what they've done in the past and maybe even how they potentially handled investors in the past or how they handle our inquiries. Are they very open and transparent or do they put up roadblocks? So I would say it's more than just a quantitative assessment. Yeah, I thought so. Incredible. And when you have these reports, I know you can look at each project independently, but is there a way to rate them side by side and give them a grade on certain of these levels? How do you take one project next to the other and compare it apples to apples? Um, I would say that with the regional uh, program, with the, with the investments that are mainly commercial real estate, I think it was a it was easier to do that because there's a lot of the same factors are going into the into these investments. But I would say now it's a lot more 
more difficult to really put them side by side and rate them. Right. So all the more so need for having EB-5 diligence to look at them with a fine tooth comb. Ruby, you've alluded to something that we're all excited to hear about. The regional center program is currently in limbo. It's on hold. We're all expecting to hear good news soon. But you tell me that you're very, very busy and that the industry is very busy. What's happening now in the EB-5 market that you're seeing? Well, I think what I'm seeing is there's a lot of investor interest at the $500,000 level. Mm -hmm. And so investors are open to looking at investments. And a lot of people who couldn't compete with necessarily the regional center program, you know, some of the smaller deals, or they maybe were in rural areas, they were in another manufacturing sector, now can raise money at the $500,000 level. So we're we're keeping busy. Fantastic. And But what I understand, we're going to look at regional center program versus the, the direct program. The way I understand is most of the regional center real estate projects were using the debt model, the loan model, where right. it was secured, if you will, there was a term, etc. Whereas I'm seeing most of these direct projects are going out with the equity model, which doesn't necessarily have a call feature. You don't necessarily have the end of the term. There's greater risk as just an equity partner, depending on all that's structured. I'm sure you have new challenges to rating the, the you can't say security, but the relative risk of one project next to its peer. So how are you struggling with that question about whether direct projects have a, a greater risk than a, a regional center project? Or are there ways that people structure them today to help mitigate that issue? Sure. Yeah, I mean, sure, there's a difference between being a debt holder and an equity holder, right? Ultimately, the investors are always equity holders in the new commercial enterprise, right? Even with the, with the debt model. Yes. Um, so they were subject to the manager's decision on when they would be liquidated. And obviously, um, you know, redeploy, having to redeploy if the money came back too early caused another issue, not knowing where the money was going to end up. So I would say there were definitely risks with the debt model, but obviously having a term, you know, gave people comfort that I know that five years, seven years down the road, this money is going to be repaid. It might get redeployed, but I know that the money's coming back. So I would say, you know, the equity model is really, it's essentially what the program is about. The investors must make an equity investment. And now the investors are are open to that, right? Of course, every deal is going to have a different possibility, a different opportunity. Some are raising money where the investors have an equal opportunity uh, alongside other common equity holders, right? They can participate in the upside as much as other common equity holders. Also seeing where the investments are offering a certain amount of preferred dividend. And if once the investors have their A29, once they have met the at-risk requirements, that that obligation escalates. So therefore, it becomes more expensive to retain that EB-5 capital. There are ways to structure it where the management is basically incented to exit the EB-5 investors. Wonderful. So what you're saying is regional center versus direct, although the regional centers were primarily structured as with the debt, the loan model, they also, of course, had to have the at-risk requirements and really was an equity investment in the NCE anyway. So they were still subject to some equity risk versus the, the direct projects where it has to be an equity investment. Investment. However, there are many ways to structure an equity investment so that a it could be it may it could be more rewarding to that higher risk profile, and to structure it so that there is an incentive and a very great incentive for the equity to be repaid at the end of its at the end of the life once they've they've uh, achieved their sustainment period completion. So really, we all know that the EB five program was created and founded to start jobs to support businesses. Which of these two models do you like better? What do you think is is the future of EB five? <laughs> wow. And it's hard to know the future of EB5. Um, obviously, there is there is some 
advantage to being able to count construction jobs because the money just has to be spent, right? A lot of construction budget usually go over budget. So if the money is there, if the project is going to be built, and if the management is able to execute on their vision, you know that they're going to spend the money and um, then get credit for those jobs. And I think the same thing goes into evaluating the direct jobs. What is the likelihood of creating these jobs full-time, full-time jobs? So I would say same thing goes into that in evaluating whether the, the financing is going to be there, whether the management is capable of executing on their vision. So to me, if, if one can one can say that construction jobs are going to be created, one should be able to also assess the likelihood of these full-time workers being hired. Right. So for the EB-5 Direct, how long do those full-time jobs have to be maintained and sustained? Uh, well, the intent has to be that they, ha- they are hired with the intention of being full-time and permanent employees. So From what period until what period does the EB-5 investor need to show that um, those 10 uh, W-2s are employed? Is it from the beginning of their investment until the end of the sustainment period? Or is there a process that they have to, a time period that they are required to maintain those jobs? It's the same as with the with the regional center program. You know, you have to create the jobs within two and a half years of the I-526 approval. So the timeline, the requirements are not any different with, with the timeline of job creation. Right. But with a with a construction job, you, you know, the idea is it's spent and that construction worker no, no longer goes to work. Really, we're even counting his job any. We're probably counting the indirect impact of those jobs. Those mm-hmm. jobs are created and banked and, and now they can they can be used to prove out the job requirement for that investor. Is there a a requirement that if it's two years, if it's five years, if it's 10 years, that those 10 have to maintain employment at that company? What happens if after year three, the the business closes and and they can no longer maintain having 10? Was the fact that they had created those 10 jobs enough or does it have to be maintained till the end? The fact that those jobs were created is enough. The fact that they were created as full-time permanent employees and things shift, right? Um, And if the business closes or business fails, that you should still be able to get credit for those full-time jobs, for creating those full-time jobs. Fantastic. All right. So I have a question about EB-5 diligence and okay. the, the reason it was created. And, you know, we are here at, with the EB-5 superheroes out to protect the good guys and, and, and foil the, the not so good guys. So do you feel that EB-5 diligence is really there to help the investors pick the right horse, to help the good guys tell their story better? And or do you think that EB-5 diligence's great strength and value is that it prevents or at least sheds light on the, the, the players who are not necessarily doing the right thing. Our job is to tell it as it is. Our interest is to provide transparency. So it doesn't matter to me something is a good deal or a bad deal. Investors should know basically what they're getting into. Right. So EB-5 Diligence is going to maintain an agnostic approach, not say that I think this is a great project and you should go for it or a not good project, you shouldn't go for it. Really, you're going to rate how much can we determine its uh, ability to help the investor get the I-526 approval, get the A to nine approval and then get their repayment of right of- we're, we're assisting the investor in evaluating and evaluating the offering we're not providing investment advice we're not giving a thumbs up or thumbs down it's giving them all the information and the tools they need to decide whether the investment is suitable for them this talks to a very macro scale of the eb5 program in general do you think that the uscis or congress needs to introduce further measures to maintain or to promote that there's greater transparency in the industry yes i think the integrity 
measures that were introduced in one of the bills were very important simply because when you sell private placements within the U.S. to U.S. investors, you must follow securities laws. Broker dealers have an obligation to do a certain level of due diligence. But when you are able to sell these investments offshore through migration agents who are not registered, you can avoid following the securities rules. So I don't think that selling to non-U.S. investors should be any different than selling to U.S. investors. I think integrity measures are very important that uh, the, the same level of due diligence that you would be providing to U.S. investors should be provided to non-U.S. investors. Maybe there could be a, a law that everyone would be required to have a third-party diligence like EB-5 diligence writing reports. That would be that would be very helpful, I'm sure. <laughs> of course, it would be helpful. <laughs> right. You have a real strength. As you said, you have a degree in accounting and finance. You're a CPA. You worked for the Canadian government as an auditor. And now you're really using that fine accounting tool to peer into the, the numbers for EB-5 and help the investors really have a very clear picture about that. Would you say that your key attention to detail is your greatest strength, is your superpower? Or would you say there's something else about Rupi Chima that makes her the EB-5 superwoman that she is? <laughs> You're embarrassing me now. What's my superpower? Well, you know, I think having an auditor's perspective is a very good, unique perspective. It's very rare in the industry, actually. You know, in India, we have um, chartered accountants. You know, it's, it's a very big piece of, of how people are making investment decisions. But definitely for these EB-5 investors, they, there's nobody else to rely on who's giving them that audit. Michael Goldberg, who we interviewed here, said that the main thing that we should introduce is to have an audit of what's going on. And that would really bring a lot more in integrity to the program and to the, the level of transparency. So really, that auditor's eye, if that's your superpower, then I think you've got the superpower that the, the industry needs here, because it's really the piece that may be lacking. I do have to clarify that obviously, we are not conducting an audit, right? We are doing due diligence, but we are bringing that perspective to our review. So then maybe you can describe it. What is there that is unique about an audit and an auditor's eye and auditor's skill that would make it a, a very good tool for looking at the approach that each EB-5 project is taking? The auditor's job is to verify the, the facts, right? They, they're looking at financial statements and they have to basically verify, back up every number that's there. So when I look at an offering or a PPM, I want to make sure that every claim that's being made in this offering memorandum is true, that it's actually backed by actual agreements. So that's the perspective we bring. I don't think that I, I paid as much attention to that point about verifying all of the points in the, in the offering. That's really a, a key piece. There's somebody to say that, is it true what the offering memorandum is saying? Is there anybody who's verified that? We all have to verify our accredited investors. Well, who's right. verifying the, the accuracy of, and the transparency of the, of the offering document? That's a huge, that's a huge plus. Exactly. I mean, I mean, securities attorneys are drafting the PPM and they're doing it based on the information that's been given to them. I have had instances where I have said to a securities attorney, hey, are you aware of this? Maybe this should go, disclosure should go in the PPM, and, and they're very thankful for that. What's an example? Just uh, you don't have to be specific to a project, but what is something that, that you think would warrant telling the securities lawyer that they need to bring that point up that it's sort of getting... It may be just a misunderstanding, right? The way um, they understood some structure to be this, but yet it's really this, right? Based on our review, this is what this is what it is. So it should be representing it accurately. Things like that, right? Right. I think it's a very good point. In the whole EB-5 process or making offering memorandum, the lawyers are going to say that we are relying on the developer's numbers, right? right. And the, the developer 
developer is going to say, we're relying on the market analysis. Everybody's sort of pointing to the next guy. But ultimately, if you could have somebody to actually check that the assumptions that are being made are accurate, at least, I think there's a great deal of value. Well, well, I'll tell you an interesting story. We actually had an instant where we were looking at a large hotel development in Manhattan, and, and they had a third party feasibility study by one of these, you know, very large companies that do the, you know, thousands of these studies, but they had a calculation error in their feasibility study. And the hotel was overvalued by over $100 million. Oh, wow. It was just a calculation error. It's like nobody checked that calculation. So that was, that was a huge problem. You know, they luckily they were in the very beginning of raising money. They had to adjust a lot of things. They actually ended up adjusting even their own. They ended up adjusting, changing the brand of the hotel. Like they were surprised by it too. Like, cause they were relying on this third party market feasibility <laughs> report. Wow, Yeah, you probably saved them hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, think about it's amazing. Calculations errors are more common than you think. Yeah, I I found them too. I found them too. I'm always looking at at spreadsheets and numbers and I see that uh, people are are making mistakes. And you know, we're all human, right? um, We all have to take responsibility to try to beef up the accuracy of of the numbers if we can. Fantastic. So it sounds like we're sort of on the one hand in the golden age of uh, EB5 Direct. And and we're all hopeful that the regional center program will come around. What do you think is, uh, is going to happen? with that regional center program and will that kick the EB-5 direct to the wayside or you think now they've gotten a greater shot at the EB-5 playing field that they will be much stronger going forward? Well, uh, first of all, I have no idea what's going to happen with the program. I, like everybody else, I only know what I hear. So I'm not going to opine on that. But I think I would say that direct investments, I think they're here to stay simply because there's more options for investors. I found when I spoke to Indian investors, they would just balk at half a percent return. It didn't settle well with them at all. So I think that Drax can compete now with uh, side by side with, with the regional center investments. Right. You know, I think the, the EB-5 direct compared to E2 even would be a preferable choice because with E2, you really have to be there to run it. You have to have a majority control, all kinds of things like that. Whereas EB-5 lets you be in EB-5 with direct, allows you to get involved in a living project that has a lot of great prospects. And there's not as much heavy touch of the requirement of, of the investor to to really be involved in the day-to-day. Right. Well, direct investments used to be if someone wanted to buy their own business or operate their own business, right? That's who chose a direct investment. It was either running a franchise restaurant or some other service providing business. But now it's not uh, limited to that. I mean, I'm looking at investments that are raising anywhere from $2 million to $20 million because they're creating enough jobs. Wow. So there's a lot more That's choice true. available in the direct sound. That's amazing. I think you're right. EB5 Direct is here to stay. And especially if you can get the scale of, you know, two investors to, to 40 investors. And if the investment amount goes up to 900,000, that might be even more significant. I, I think there really is a, a good opportunity for, for smaller projects that don't require the indirect jobs, don't require the great collection of capital in the NCE level to have a, a great shot at, at really building something meaningful. Especially if the differential is, is big, right? So one of the challenges for the regional center program may be, what is the differential between um, TEA and a non-TEA investment? So a lot of these direct investments, especially the ones in the manufacturing sector or other telehealth, they're able to choose their the site, right? The where they set up business. So they, they may have that advantage if the differential is large. Mm, I see. So you're saying that there are a lot of regional center projects because of just the nature of those, those larger projects. It's more difficult for them to find a TEA location where they might. Or they want to be in a certain market and, and they can't change right. that. That's the market that makes sense for that business. Right. 
way. But like you said, maybe the smaller business, whether it be a, a telemedicine or manufacturing, it might be more slated towards a, a TEA location. So that, that's, a, that's sort of an advantage of EB5 Direct. Fantastic. Fantastic. So as you said, we can't pontificate about where we're going to go. But would you say that the EB5 program has really uh, brought a great amount of benefit to the U.S. economy? Do you think it really has any impact ultimately? Or is it just a nice visa program um, or green card program for a very small minority of, of, of wealthy expats? Well, I, I think it's been very beneficial to the U.S. economy. There's a debate, obviously, between the rural versus urban, right? What's having more impact? Is it the developers who are raising money who would have had, who would have raised this money anyway? And, you know, is it? A- it really is a very difficult debate. The rural versus the urban, the large developer versus the small mom and pop. Where is the money best spent and best invested? What is, quote, best for the U.S. economy? Each one has its pros and cons, and each can probably help the U.S. economy economy in its own way. Well said, Matt. So tell us a little bit more about EB-5 Diligence. Are you very busy? Where can we find you? How does the whole process work? If we want to get one of these, if we're an investor, we want to download these reports, or if we're a regional center or developer with a project, how do we go through this whole process? Tell us a little bit more about the process and your firm and, and your team of EB-5 superheroes who work with you. Well, first of all, you can find us on our website, which is eb5diligence.com. And the process is, well, there, there's two ways to, for investors to access our due diligence. One is you may not be aware, uh, my partner, Kurt Royce, who, who operates eb5marketplace.com, he works under a broker dealer. So we basically provide the due diligence to market marketplace on on all the investments that are hosted there. So that is available to investors at no cost. But if something is not listed there, an investor wants us to uh, do the analysis, uh, we're happy to do that. So we can, uh, so they bring a project to us and we basically go through an engagement agreement and then we request documents from the issuer and and we provide a report. And nothing is available for for download, obviously, right? Because it's not something we're allowed to do. This is confidential information. This is, uh, we're not providing reports to be downloaded online. The direct engagement with an investor or with, with an issuer. Okay. And would you say that the, the number of investors that are, are utilizing these reports is, is increasing? Um, do you think that because there's a more mature and savvy investor out there looking, they really are relying more on these types of reports and, and they need them to make their investment decisions or at least to inform their investment decisions? Yes, I would say so. I, I would say the more and more people are looking for due diligence simply because outside of China, people t- tend to go online and do their research and they they come across some scary articles about a fraud case that leads them to look for due diligence. Right. And so finally, Rupi, tell me, are you optimistic about the future of EB-5? Are you conservative or are you uh, somewhere in between? Well, I'm optimistic because a due diligence is in demand. And for me, it doesn't matter if it's a direct or a regional center of investment. I, I would say I'm optimistic because there is a permanent program. I, I realize the pilot program is on hold, but we still have an EB-5 program. Right. So EB-5 is alive and well. And the investors, you said regional center or direct, are all going to need proper diligence and proper verification and auditing as you so skillfully do. And so we in the industry want to thank you, Arupi, for all the great things that you're doing and want to wish you continued success to go from strength to strength, onward and upward. And we want to thank you for all the great things you're doing and blessings for success going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. That's a wrap. Rupi Chima and other EB-5 superheroes like her are the industry's best and brightest. We're flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero. Have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.